My kitchen currently looks like some mad scientist's laboratory. My quarantine hobby of fermenting food has taken over. There's a jug of plum juice, honey, and yeast becoming wine on one counter, and three jars of sugar and tea souring and fizzing into kombucha on another. In the highest cabinet is a canister of water and salt and very spicy peppers, which will get blended into hot sauce in a month. And as of last night, there's a two-gallon stone crock full of a concoction that smells like grape nuts, but will hopefully be Korean rice beer by next Sunday night. And on my phone is an increasingly complicated note about all of this. When it needs to be stirred and fed or racked off the lees, whatever that means, I'll figure it out in a month. Keeping it all going is a job. It's a responsibility. And it has reminded me this week of my first attempts at culturing food way back in sixth grade. One Wednesday evening that year, our bell choir director brought a loaf of Amish friendship bread with her to practice. Sweet, cinnamony, quick bread that I'm sure was taken out only after we'd polished and put away our bells. I must have said something about liking it because then that Sunday she arrived with an index card with a recipe on it and this quart-size Ziploc baggie with like half a cup or so of tan goop. This goop turned out to be a starter. And when I say it was my first time trying to culture food, that's what I mean. A food into which you introduce some live culture, bacteria or yeast or, or even mold, that will transform the ingredients into something tasty, hopefully. Not that I knew about any of that at 12, or knew really anything about baking at all, or anything about Amish friendship bread other than what was on that three and a half, three by five card that she handed me. And what was printed on that turned out to be not just a recipe for a loaf of bread, but also instructions and a timeline for keeping that starter going and, as it turned out, growing. Every few days, I was supposed to dump that baggie of goop into a bowl and mix it with amounts of other ingredients, flour, sugar, cinnamon, quick bread stuff. And when it was all folded together, I poured most of it into a greased loaf pan, but a cup of it got held back and deposited into not one, but two quart-sized baggies. When you made it, you, that was the friendship part. You ended up with a loaf and then your own starter plus a starter for a friend that would definitely want it. I had been tricked by the recipe card into doubling my supply of goop. It was like one of those chain letters that tell you to copy it or you're doomed for all eternity. Although, at this point, it was just an extra bag of goop on the counter. An extra bag of goop plus, like, an impending sense of obligation. I tried to think of whom I could unload it on. None of my 12-year-old friends were bakers. My bell choir director had the church market cornered, and while my family had enjoyed the first loaf, neither of my sisters, ages 10 or 8, had asked for my recipe. So in the end, I just left the second bag on the counter next to the first and figured I'd make an extra loaf next time. So a few days later, as the card instructed me, I dutifully went through the process again, and yes, predictably maybe, 
came out the other side with two loaves and four bags of goop. I could see now that this was unsustainable. My family members were happy to eat one loaf of sweet cinnamony bread, but three in a week seemed like too much to them. I hadn't made any new friends since the first batch, and I wasn't sure I even had the supplies to make four loaves the next time, plus I had, I had gotten wise to this multiplication thing. So with a crushing sense of guilt, I disposed of all four starters, dumping them down the sink or maybe burying them at the bottom of the trash can where no one would see the food that I had wasted. I told myself it wasn't exactly my fault. I had asked for bread and been given like a part-time job. I had asked for, you know, an additional piece of cake and become responsible for like feeding this sentient goop and disseminating it throughout the Midwest. I didn't bargain on a recipe that took such care and tending. I wasn't ready to be a parent, I was 12. So I ended my experiment with cultured food there and vowed to never take it up again. Later, I learned that my starter's neediness was not incidental. That's what culture means at its Latin roots, to tend, to care for, to help to grow, like cultivate. Cultured food is work, it's responsibility. It means keeping something alive, both living and lively, not letting it die and also keeping it bubbly and active, happy indefinitely. For those who swear by it, cultured food is a way of life, a rhythm of days and weeks established by the invisible microorganisms with which we share our kitchens, whether we tend to them or not. It's maybe not surprising that that same Latin word that gives us culture gives us the word cult, which feels appropriate in talking about fermentation enthusiasts. <laughs> But despite the negative connotation of that word, a cult, by definition, is just a community of belief and practice. If they get popular, they become religions. If not, they become Netflix documentaries. But it's just a group of people which has chosen to tend to a particular story, a way of understanding life that have chosen to cultivate it and pass it on. Over time, folks have found these sources of nourishment, and then they've given their lives to care for them. They found sources of warmth and light and decided to keep those fires going. And whether we consider ourselves religious or not, we end up tending to one story or another. Like the story that Rebecca read of the God who speaks to Moses and the Hebrew people in Deuteronomy. That God makes it explicit that the story is meant to be shared, meant to be passed on and multiplied. That God commands it. Keep these words, recite them to your children, talk about them when you're at home and when you're away, when you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand, fix them as an emblem on your forehead, write them on the doorposts of your home and on your gates. Way more demanding than the recipe for friendship bread. God is clear, I have given you a story and I want you to tell it. 
I have made you a part of my story. Don't forget the story of a God who heard the cry of the oppressed. The story of a people liberated from what seemed like the strongest empire on earth. The story of a God who directed and provided for you through all of your wandering. A story of a God whose greatest commandment is to love with all your heart and soul and might. Tend that story, God says. Cultivate it. Pass it on. When Moses speaks these words in, in this version of the story, God has already led the people through the wilderness for 40 years. It's different from that Exodus Charlton Heston version that you might know, where God tells them all of that at the beginning. Here the people are, are preparing to cross over into the promised land. And God tells them to remember the story of liberating love that they've been telling together. God knows that when the people cross over that border and settle down in their new home, they'll be tempted to cultivate all kinds of stories. Stories that others will give them, stories they'll make up for themselves, stories maybe of self-sufficiency, stories of interest, stories of their own empire and oppression. God knows how easy it is to be handed a story and take it on to start telling it and letting it multiply before you even know you're doing it, to end up with four bags of goop. God knows how easy it can be to forget that your life is even telling a story, that something is being tended and grown in you in every moment. God knows that keeping that fire going is work, it's a responsibility. And God wants the people to use their work to cultivate this story of love that they've been given. Because of all the stories that we could tell with our lives, we, we wind up only getting to tell a few. And we have to choose. Maybe we tell the story that life is about achieving success or the story that life is about struggling to overcome our, our evil natures or the story that life is about family, or about tradition, or about earning worthiness by being good, or smart, or excellent. Or the story that life is meaningless. Or the story that life is about loving God and our neighbors. We receive these stories from someone else, someone who knowingly or unknowingly is spending their own life telling it. Here, try this, they say. I think you'll like it. Or maybe they say, try this. This is what we eat in this family. Or they say, try this. This is all there is to eat. Once we take it, we find out that the gift comes with a responsibility. It wants to be fed and cared for. It wants us to allow it to shape our time and our lives and our actions. Sometimes we spend a long time tending a story without realizing it, without seeing that we're doing it, let alone recognizing the impact it has on us. Maybe nourishing us, maybe wreaking havoc, like a chain letter. Sometimes it takes a long time, even a lifetime, 
to understand that just because someone gives us a story doesn't mean we have to care for it. Doesn't mean we have to repeat it. We can pause like the Israelites on the edge of something new and ask ourselves, is this the story I want to tell with my life? And if not, we can, even if it's with a crushing sense of guilt, we can bury it at the bottom of the garbage or dump it out in the sink and choose a new one. The thing is to know that we're choosing. In every moment, with every action, we are culturing ourselves, our world. We're deciding what to grow, what to make more of. Whether we know it or not, we are telling a story. And we get to choose, is this the one I want to care for? And it's important because the stories that we tend also tend us. God tells the people in this story, observe these commandments diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey. I don't think that means that if we do what God asks us, everything will go well. That if we tell God's story, nothing bad can happen to us. We know that's not true. But I think it means if we use our lives to tell the story of love, then we create lives and communities and a world of love. And the love that we cultivate there will be there for us when we need it. If we tell God's story, we will live more and more in the world that God intends for us, the world we were made for. The story we care for cares for us. Another meaning of that Latin word that means tend and care for is to nurse, like a mother. We provide the nutrients needed to grow our food, our stories, from our cupboards, from our wallets, from our bodies, from our days and years. We mother them and they grow, but we also receive nourishment from them. We feed off of them their cinnamony sweetness, their sour fizz. The name for the gelatinous starter that sits on top of that sugary tea in my kitchen that we call a jellyfish in our house, it's a kombucha mother. It's the same with a lot of cultures. Mother of vinegar, for example, is what turns your Merlot into salad dressing, which is kind of a reverse miracle, but <laughs> you nurse it and it mothers you. You feed it and it nourishes you. Just like our stories. What is the story you care for? The one you've shaped your life around, created a world out of? How is it caring for you? Is it nourishing? Intoxicating? Sweet? Or is it time to dump it, wash out your vessel, and start again?